Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clyde Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 364th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association. Of course, we know them as AHIMA. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everybody. This morning, our lead story is about the major change to risk adjustment reimbursement. As you know, risk adjustment reimbursement is coming to home health, as we're all going to learn today from Bonnie Cassidy. That's right. CMS is moving home health agencies away from volume-based payments to a new value-based system. Indeed. Looking forward to hearing from Bonnie Cassidy, that's for sure. And also on today's Talk 10 Tuesday, Glenn Krauss returns with his CDI report. That's right. Also, Lori Johnson is going to be reporting on coding the diseases that are making headline news. I wonder if one of those stories is going to be about vaping. Uh, it's been in the news lately. We'll have to wait and see. Also, you have a very interesting segment today. What are you going to be talking about? No, I think you guys are just going to have to wait and see. I, I am going to share one quick fact I learned about CCs. I hope you think some of it's interesting. I'm sure we will. Looking forward to your observations, as always. We have much to report, and we'll begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to download the cardiovascular ICD-10 PCS coding webcast. Simply click on the handout tab in today's broadcast. Here now is Tim Powell. If you're going to commit fraud, make sure you're not driving around in your $1.6 million Ferrari. We're going to talk about fraud Miami style. Philip is Formas, the operator of 16 skilled nursing and assistive facilities in South Florida, was found guilty Friday of 20 charges, including paying bribes, kickbacks to bring patients into his businesses. And according to Assistant Attorney General Brian A. Benkowitz of the Justice Department's Criminal Division, Philippus Formas orchestrated one of the largest healthcare fraud schemes in U.S. history, defrauding Medicare and Medicaid to the tune of over a billion dollars. I would like to give some background on South Florida and healthcare fraud that will give you an idea of what he was found guilty of, as well as how he argued that he was innocent. The largest challenge for skilled nursing homes is keeping up census. Not just any type of census, you need a lot of Medicare patients. Most nursing homes are filled with mainly patients covered by Medicaid. Medicaid pays lower amounts for care and does not provide for ancillary services that drive up revenue. One way of getting Medicare patients in your skilled nursing homes is to bribe local doctors to put them there. Not starting the practice, but as an example, in 2013, Plaza Health Networks in Miami settled with the OIG and paid a $17 million fine, in part largely for paying kickbacks to doctors for filling beds with Medicare patients. In that case, the OIG argued that large payments made to physicians as director fees were actually kickbacks for steering patients to Plaza. Plaza argued that they were paying for physicians to provide support and assist in the care of patients. The government makes similar arguments against Mr. Esformis. Mr. Esformis' attorneys make similar arguments to Plaza in his defense. The other way of making money that you didn't earn is to build the government for things you didn't do. The indictment argued that Esformis used his network of skilled nursing homes to file false claims for services that were not necessary or never provided. 
there's almost certain validity in the OIG's arguments. But how do skilled nursing homes argue that they have done nothing wrong in these cases? Well, until recently, the reimbursement for Medicare patients in skilled nursing homes was driven by the amount of physical, occupational, and speech therapy services that were given to them. Miami averages for providing these ancillary services per patients in nursing homes vastly outstrips national norms. Some South Florida hospital nursing homes bill so much for these therapy services that every patient is billed to Medicare as an ultra-high uh, patient under exist the existing Medicare system. Skilled nursing providers cheating the system argue that nursing homes are providing care based on physician orders and that this level of care and all of these services charged are required. While it's true that a lot of ancillary services billed for were never provided, in large part these services were given to patients and providers argue that it is necessary even when it appears unbelievable. How can you tell there's fraud? Here are some hints. Mr. In Mr. Informus was running nursing homes. He also has a Ferrari worth $1.6 million. And with that, I would just give it back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's April the 9th, 2019, and you're listening to the 364th edition of Talk 10 Tuesdays. Stand by. How can you better support your team? Take your knowledge to the next level with advanced coding knowledge from Mahima's Crack the Codes Advanced Coding Workshop. Advance and grow your coding power in ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, or CPT by walking through actual redacted patient health records led by a coding expert. Encourage greater efficiency within your team. Raise the standard of healthcare information quality and assist your organization in meeting industry requirements. Don't miss this event taking place in Chicago starting June 10th. Visit ahima.org slash crack the codes to learn more and register. A couple of weeks ago, it was my pleasure to moderate a really great webcast on coding cardiovascular surgery. It's now available on demand, and you can save 25 bucks when you enter the coupon code TUESDAYS. Now's the time for the Tucked In Tuesday Coding Report with healthcare consultant, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. Have you noticed how many time, how many diseases are in the news lately? You may not be as geeky as I am about codes, but I often wonder what the codes are that are associated with the diseases or procedures that they're talking about in the news. Just this morning, it was announced from the CDC that Candida auris has sickened 600 people across the United States. The code for that infection is B37.89, and Z16.32, as it's also identified as being drug-resistant to antimicrobial medications. So last week, the Food and Drug Administration reported that 35 people reported seizures after using electronic cigarettes, or vaping, as Erica talked about. The code for using e-cigarettes based on Coding Clinic second quarter 2017 is F17.290. The seizures are coded as R56.9, as we have no additional information to further specify. The seizures may be related to nicotine poisoning, which is coded as T65.22 
one, and then we need a, an appropriate seventh character. Note that there is no ad, no code for adverse reaction to nicotine. Measles is another disease that's been in the news a lot. The U.S. was thought to have eliminated measles in 2000, but almost 400 cases have been reported since the beginning of 2019. The measles have impacted 15 states. The outbreaks have been attributed to international travelers who bring the virus into the United States. And that means the people that are U.S. citizens go to another country, and when they come back, they bring the virus with them. The people who are impacted are those who are unvaccinated. Measles is coded as B05 point, and then there's a fourth character. That fourth character designates the associated conditions, such as encephalitis, which is B05.0, or pneumonia, B05.2. There are also French, German, and Liberty measles, which are classified as rubella, and the code for that is B06.9 if it's without complications. Again, the fourth character in category B06 designates associated conditions. Rubella is highly contagious virus. This virus is a danger to pregnant women as it can cause birth defects. An encounter for immunization for these diseases is assigned as Z23. And last but not least, and I don't often report about procedures during Talk 10, but we can't overlook Mick Jagger and undergoing transcatheter aortic valve replacement or TAVR. This minimally invasive procedure will save many days and weeks of recovery time. The code for TAVR procedure is 02RF3, and then the sixth character can be 7, 8, J, or K, and the seventh character is Z. The sixth character is dependent on the type of tissue used to replace the aortic valve. The approach is percutaneous, as it was described as transcatheter. It is important to read the body of the operative note to understand the details to assign the correct PCS code. Mick is dancing in the streets and on his way to recovery. Back to you, Erica. Thank you, Lori. I thought I was the only person who did it, and as you started your your piece, I was on uh, icd10data.com to try to find out the Candida Oris uh, code and you beat me to it. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, very much. And thanks for looking up that code as well. And thank you, Lori. And you can read Lori's reporting on this very timely topic of the ICD 10 Monitor News. And standing by with the Talk 10 Tuesday CDI report is Glenn Kraus. The Talk 10 Tuesday CDI report is brought to you by Capios Health's two-click software solution, IOSearch. IOSearch quickly and accurately identifies the correct billing code and patient status for Medicare procedures. Here now is Glenn Krauss. Thank you, Chuck. You know, there's a striking similarity between the CDI profession and the auto manufacturing business of the 1970s and its current state. In some ways, the CDI profession can be referred to as an industry. You will understand as I outline in just a few minutes. If you recall, for those who remember the 70s and early 80s, 
The U.S. automaker's business model was predicated and content on assembling low-quality cars. Assemble them as quickly as possible, develop automation to assemble cars quicker, cut corners with little regard for quality of the product. The mentality was the auto dealers would address and deal with all the quality issues of the car, including repairing and rectifying shoddy workmanship. Now let's examine the CDI profession or industry as I refer to it. The premise of CDI is fairly straightforward. It is a numbers game similar to manufacturing autos. Review as many records as feasible in a given day. The more records reviewed, the greater the likelihood of identifying query opportunities for diagnosis clarification and solidification for the end goal of optimized reimbursement for the case. Now, overlay CDI software to enhance the quote-unquote efficiency of chart reviews to facilitate even more chart reviews, pinpointing records that have the greatest opportunity for documentation improvement optimization, i.e. reimbursement improvement to improve productivity and return on investment and performance of the CDI program. Just like autos, coming off the assembly line with subpar quality and workmanship. Records are coming off the assembly line with subpar, like I said, quality and inability to stand the test of time, which I'll go into in a minute. Increased compliance exposure and financial risk as CDI is under the gun to meet strict productivity standards. And what leads me to this assertion? Well, first of all, I'm seeing firsthand, as well as my colleagues, more and more denials for medical necessity, clinical validation, and DRG downcodes. The improper payment supplemental data 2018 CERT report tells it all. 8.1% improper payment rate, 84% attributable to insufficient documentation and medical necessity. They are really one and the same if you think about it. In the Part A, in the Part A inpatient segment, the improper payment rate was 4.8% with projected improper payments at 8.6 billion. Insufficient documentation and medical necessity accounted for 87% of the improper payments in the hospital setting. Now, I looked at table D4, it stood out like a sore thumb in the report. It shows the top 20 DRGs with improper payments. You will notice that all the common DRGs are listed, uh, sepsis, uh, Pneumonia, complex pneumonia, uh, let's see, acute renal failure, gastroenteritis and miscellaneous digestive disorders, syncope, chest pain, and the majority of improper payments within these DRGs are associated with, you guessed it, insufficient documentation and medical necessity. Area of CDI can certainly affect and impact in a positive way, only if we are afforded the opportunity to actually work to improve the real documentation. Couple of closing points here. Insufficient documentation is not being addressed by current CDI processes, processes that are task-based, reinforced by CDI software, creating a pervasive model of volume-based CDI. I fully support efficiency in business processes with proper intentions. CDI software overlaid upon CDI processes where we allowed the opportunity to work with case management, UI, and the physician and physician advisor to impact the real quality of documentation behind diagnosis capture. And here's a, the last point I really want to stress, okay? It really doesn't make any sense if we just focus on a diagnosis, uh, which, I'm, which I fully support, unless we really focus on the uh, improvement of the clinical facts, context, and 
clinical information because if we don't, we're just uh, we're not getting paid for the care. And while we want to while we want to provide quality care, we also want to get paid. So really, now is the time to look at what we're doing and realize that change is inevitable. Take action. See what you can do about improving your programs. Thank you very much for your reporting. It's got an excellent story in this morning's ICD-10 Monitor E-News. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Frequently changing Medicare regulations can greatly impact a hospital system's bottom line. Since most hospitals operate on a 2% margin, the impact of multiple claim denials can be staggering. Many hospitals and health systems focus a great deal of effort on appealing denials rather than focusing efforts on prevention. Discover how you can direct your attention to prevention and use a tool that spans the entire revenue cycle. Download the white paper using IO Surge to help reduce claim denials. See the link in today's handout folder to register for an instant download of this white paper from Capio's Health. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast today, we're going to be reporting on changes to the risk adjustment reimbursement. Of course, one of those changes is that risk adjustment reimbursement is coming to home health agencies as CMS moves away from volume-based payment to one based on value. Here now with the details is the former president of HEMA and its 2014 Distinguished Member Triumph Award recipient, Bonnie Cassie. Good morning, Bonnie. Welcome back to Talk It's been a long time. Good morning, Chuck. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'd like to cover a little bit on the home health agency changes. Uh, The Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, commonly referred to as ACA, included provisions for all sorts of changes on Medicare costs, uh, growing revenues, improving delivery systems, and increased services. So we know the ACA was really aimed at moving the U.S. health care from fee-for-service to fee-for-value and provided risk-adjusted models for reimbursement. There are several types of risk adjustment models that are used today to risk adjust healthcare data. And health information management professionals have been recognized across the states as critical to the success of achieving results for some of these models, particularly HCCs and a focus on Medicare Advantage. HIM has moved from acute care to the physician office to educate physicians in creating physician queries and really obtaining the specific information needed for coding. And now HIM has a new role in home health. CMS is moving home health agencies away from a volume-based payment model to a new value-based payment system called the patient-driven groupings model. And you'll see in the literature, this is referred to as PDGM. So the PDGM is a new payment model for home health prospective payment system that relies heavily on the clinical characteristics and patient information to place home health periods of care into meaningful payment categories. And this eliminates the use of therapy service thresholds. So PDGM focuses on patient needs and relies very heavily on the patient characteristics in order to pay for home health. Well, what does that say? You know there's a role here for HIM and coding because you have to go into the specificity of the documentation to get that information for coding. And briefly, there's a 30-day period that's grouped into 432 uh, home health resource groups. 
And this is based on the admission source, the timing, the clinical groupings that are based on codes, functional impairment level, and comorbidity adjustment. So everything you're hearing there rings in HIM and coding and the need for physician querying and CDI programs built into the home health model. So lots of changes in operations are going to be required to have a place and to really relate this all to the creating of uh, queries for coding. Just like HCCs, PDGM is another tremendous opportunity for the HIM professional because of the need for ICD-10 expertise. ICD-10 codes are used to determine these clinical groups that I just mentioned. So like most HIM professionals, many aspects of risk-adjusted coding are reminiscent and give us that feeling of deja vu and DRGs. Dr. Todd Husky is an associate of mine working for owning Marcy, and he's been saying for a while now, this PDGM, it's like DRGs all over again. The biggest wow is that PDGM will take effect January 1, 2020. In conjunction with the implementation of these programs is the unit of home health payment from a 60-day episode to a 30-day period. These are huge changes for the home health industry and reimbursement. PDGM represents a great opportunity for HIM professionals to leverage their ICD-10 knowledge and expertise and once again, provide their own personal value proposition to their own organization. PDGM cannot successfully be implemented without you, the HIM professional. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bonnie. That was past president and chair of AHIMA, Bonnie Cassidy. Bonnie is the president of Cassidy and Associates. Chuck? Erica, thanks very much. And Bonnie, uh, thanks for an excellent story. By the way, you can read all about those changes to risk adjustment reimbursement in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. Thanks again, Bonnie. Now it's the time for our very popular segment here on Talk to Enthusiasts called Talk Back, and it features our own Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what's on your mind today? Well, Chuck, recently I've had a lot of physician advisors ask me how they can educate themselves on clinical documentation integrity. You know that a lot of these um, physician advisors come from the utilization review case management side, so um, they have recognized that CDI is very valuable, and so they want to know how they can get uh, knowledge in that field. When I interviewed for my PA job in 2012, it was the first time it ever even occurred to me that hospitals got paid, too. I was the expert in my department on documentation reimbursement as regarding the E&M evaluation management CPT codes, but I knew nothing about CDI. So my boss wanted me, wanted me because he could tell I was passionate about documentation excellence, and he knew that I could learn all the other stuff I needed to know. He knew that all I needed was time and for him to keep out of my way for a few months, and he was right. I did teach myself what I needed to know, and now I try to teach others. I think having a physician advisor, however, is critical to the success of a CDI program. I can come in and educate providers as to what quality and reimbursement metrics are and which conditions make a difference, but the CDI team has to seal the deal for behavior change to be sustainable, and I believe that an effective physician advisor supports the CDI team and continues to educate the staff on new criteria and problem diagnoses du jour after I'm gone. Although there are numerous boot camps for utilization of UK case management physician advisors, 
there are limited formalized programs for CDI physician advisor education. The one I attended years ago was Actus's pre-conference, and I even got to teach it a few years ago. It was a good starting point. In June, my friend and colleague, Tim Brundage, is putting on a course aimed at giving new physician advisors the baseline knowledge they need to touch on CDI, in addition to some URCM. I offer a service to try to do a data dump of my knowledge into a willing PA receptacle and to support them as they come up to speed. I'm trying to compile a list of resource materials which a PA needs to be intimately familiar with, and I will share one with you today because I found something interesting in it. I'm going to respectfully ask listeners not to email me and ask me for my whole list, however. That's part of like a service I'm trying to provide. The article I am referring to is Design and Development of the DRG, which is available at cms.gov, and I think that Emily has not only posted the reference site, but I believe she's also actually posted um, the uh, actual uh, article. I found this fascinating about the creation of the original DRG system, which is, as Bonnie was talking about, a risk adjustment system. So what they originally called a substantial complication or comorbidity, which they coined as CC, was defined as a condition that because of its presence with a specific principal diagnosis would cause an increase in length of stay by at least one day in at least 75% of patients. I had no idea that that's how the original CC was um, defined. By the time the DRG system was revamped in 2008 to be the MSDRG model we all know and love, 80% of patients had one of those original CCs, and the ability to discriminate hospital resource utilization had been dampened. So the diagnoses comprising CCs were redefined to consist of significant acute disease, advanced end-stage or acute exacerbations of chronic disease, and chronic diseases associated with extensive debility. They further split them into major CCs and CCs. 12% of all diagnoses were classified as MCCs, 24% are CCs, and 64% are neither. Certain diagnoses associated with mortality are only MCCs if the patient survives. This article was quite good at explaining the DRG methodology and goes up to Grouper version 34.0. In 2019, we are presently in version 36.0. I recommend reading this article if you want to understand how the MSDRG system came about. Back to you, Chuck. <laughs> Thanks, Erica, very much. Uh, that's a very excellent segment, and I uh, want to thank you uh, for bringing that to our attention. We've asked our panelists to stick around for a couple of uh, questions that might be coming in. Uh, standing by with us, of course, is Laurie Johnson, Glenn Krause, Tim Powell, and Bonnie Cassidy. Uh, Erica, what prompted you to uh, research this article for us? Like I said, I'm trying to um, get together a reading list uh, for um, physician advisors who want to uh, specifically do CDI. In fact, I think it's going to turn out that I'm, I'm sort of think I'm, I'm going to end up writing a book because I think that it's there's so much information, and rather than having people go to, like, you know, 25 different articles, I may have them just have a resource that they'll be able to use. But we'll see about that. Um, Chuck, I do have a question for Bonnie, though. So, okay. So, Bonnie, um, as I was talking about, you know, I, I strongly am interested in these um, risk adjustment models. And so mm-hmm. the inpatient 
DRG system is really skewed towards acute diagnoses. And then the HCC model um, or the population health model are, are really skewed kind of towards chronic conditions that predict utilization of resources. Um, what kind of uh, diagnoses are included in the risk adjustment model modeling for the patient-driven groupings? They're very focused on the admission source, and there's a couple of subgroups uh, for those. And then the clinical groupings, there's 12 subgroups. So those musculoskeletal and the rehab, some of the ones that you naturally would think of, Lori, neuro and stroke rehab, wounds, medication management, uh, teaching and assessment, uh, surgical aftercare, cardiac and circulatory, endocrine, GI, infectious diseases. Um, those are a few. Um, so they're really trying to put a focus on where, where they have the opportunity to contain costs and really uh, continue to take good care of patients, but uh, doing everything that they can to uh, really grow revenues for them for Medicare and contain the costs. Were there any diagnoses that you specifically saw that surprised you that you said? Because I, I have to tell you, I spend a lot of time surfing in ICD-10-CM, and sure. every day I look and I see a code and I go, who knew there was a code for that? Was there anything that surprised you that was in this system? The biggest surprise to me is that it's January 1, 2020, and we've got such little time to research all of this. So I think out of the 432 possible uh, case mix adjusted payment groups, that's that's really where I've got to do some more digging and homework um, is to be able to answer that question for you. Well, and I, so I, I think that that actually, this is a good way to end, Chuck. As I always say to everybody, Make the patient look as sick and complex in the medical record as they look in real life, and all of the risk adjustment modeling sort of takes care of itself. Thanks, Eric, very much. That is going to be a wrap for our 364th edition of Talk to Tuesday. And Eric, I want to thank our panelists today, Lori Johnson, Glenn Cross, Timothy Powell, and our special guest, whom you just heard, Bonnie Cassidy. And remember, no matter where you are, you can always listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD 10 Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.